continuing our study in the Gospel of John this morning. It's been a couple weeks for me, but here we are once again. We're actually going to be looking at um, Matthew and Mark and Luke as well. I'm just going to give you these now so that you have them. Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 7. And we'll start in Matthew 26. But just a reminder of where we left off, and to give us an understanding of the transition of chapter 12 in, in John, and the necessity of these other texts to fully understand, to get a, a bigger picture of what was going on. And then our key points for us this morning. And in chapter 11, we remember we learned more of the life of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their devotion toward the Lord. And we remember that Jesus, as we read, raised Lazarus from the dead. This picture of conversion, this picture of the effectual call, as he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And then there was the conspiracy to kill Jesus, which was further put together by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who did not always get along, as we know. But here they were now working together in order to seize Jesus, in order to kill him. In chapter 12 of John, there is a transition from a very public ministry to that which becomes more of a private ministry. Chapter 13 begins the final discourses of the Lord given to the disciples, addressed to them specifically. But here in chapter 12, we have John's account, uh, the final, beginning the final week of the life of Christ, concluding with the cross. And then the death, the burial, and of course, the resurrection of our Lord. In chapter 12, we'll see uh, these last teachings before the general public. The anointing at Bethany, the triumphal entry, this visit from, from the Greeks, and the final charge to believe. This final week is the most important week of anyone who ever lived of all time. Almost half of John's gospel is devoted to this last week. Listen to Richard Phillips give a rough chronology of Jesus' last days. On Saturday, he dined with Lazarus and his sisters. On Sunday, Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. He returned to Jerusalem on Monday, cursing the barren fig tree on the way. Tuesday saw his last public preaching in Jerusalem, concluding with Jesus' retirement to the Mount of Olives, giving the Olivet Discourse to his disciples. On Wednesday, he stayed again at Bethany, returning to the city on Thursday to observe the Passover with his disciples, after which he was arrested. And that night and morning, Jesus was tried, and on Friday, he was crucified. Now, the circumstances we're going to read in John chapter 12, and as we look at Matthew 26 and Mark and Luke, Luke's a little different. We'll see why. The circumstances of a dinner party. There was when someone had a home, and perhaps they were a a family of means, they would have a, a courtyard. And this meal, if they were going to have any kind of celebratory meal, it would be semi public. People would stop by, they would chat, maybe even hang out for a little while. And then there would be those who were understood to be there that would be there the whole time. So we think about this in our context, uh, somewhat like a block party that is held for families in a neighborhood. Someone may be hosting the event, and there's people that are there that are going to be there, and they're eating there, and then other people stop by, and they may spend some time there, and then they move on. But before we get into the details of chapter 12, it's important for us to notice that there is an account of an anointing, of a anointing in all four of the Gospels. 
We start in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 6. And we may be popping back here throughout the sermon in Matthew and in Mark, so be ready. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For he has, she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. This I say to you, whatever, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Now go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And verse 3 and following. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. We'll see, and we're going to go to John 12 in a moment after we stop at Luke 7. But these are the same accounts. In Bethany, home of Simon the leper, this very costly perfume, the disciples were present. The disciples were indignant. In Mark, some were remarking to one another. They were indignant also. In John, as we will see, Judas was singled out as the spokesperson for them, as the one who really uh, had a comment to say. In Luke, we have an account also of an anointing, but it has some similarities. Well, it does, but also some differences. Let's go there for a moment before we go to John. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 in verse 36. And here we're going to see a contrast between the woman and between uh, the Pharisee. We won't go into the, the whole chapter for time's sake, but chapter 7 verse 36. One of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had been invited saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And we could read further along but we won't. So this is a Pharisee's house. 
Now, if we read the scriptures, there's a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, there's more than one person named Simon in the, in the New Testament. There's lots of Marys. Sometimes we can get them mixed up as we study the Word of God. And there are, are two men called Lazarus. This woman here in Luke's account is, is unnamed. She's described as a sinner. Verse 37, verse 39, and verse 47. There is an emphasis there in the context which tells us something. We don't see the same description of Mary in John 12. And the timing, the circumstances, the location, the reactions in Luke are very different than the other accounts. The account in Bethany also happened later in Jesus' ministry. So when we read Matthew, Mark, and John, we see that it is the same account. Luke his, the account there appears to be a different circumstance. Now, some scholars will say, no, it's the same, and they'll explain why. Other scholars will say, it is a different account, it's a different woman, it is a different Simon, and that's where I landed after uh, my study in this. The reactions to the anointing are similar. The sum of 300 denarii are mentioned in Mark and John. Matthew calls it very costly perfume as it narrows our focus into the gospel of John and what we will see this morning. The anointing of the head, the recognition of his kingship, and also the anointing of his feet. This submission to the Lord. Well, which is it? Anointing of the head or anointing of the feet? Well, both. Large vial of very costly, poignant perfume. Both. Anointing of the head and wiping his feet. Go to John chapter 12 now for our study this morning. John chapter 12. And I'll ask the Lord's help this morning once again. Father, I pray you would indeed help me to preach your word faithfully and accurately. And I pray you'd give me unction from on high, O Lord. Give ears to hear, pliable hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And Mary, we'll see, was there as well. Simon the leper was mentioned in Matthew and Mark as the owner of the house where this took place. Simon the leper was healed by the Lord, and his relationship to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus could have, been, uh, could have drawn closer because of their commonality of knowing the Lord. He could have been closely related, just, uh, or just the host of this supper. It was a supper, a sentimental and symbolic supper, a way of thanking the Lord, a way of recognition to the Lord. And a celebration as well of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Imagine those who heard of him. They would want to see this Lazarus. Of course they wanted to see Jesus as well. But imagine the conflicting thoughts. Oh, yes, I want to see Jesus, but I also want to see this one that he, rose, that he raised from the dead. That he brought out of the tomb. I've heard about it, have you? Imagine the conversation. And this sentimental and symbolic supper was arranged. Jesus previously left the area. We see that in in chapter 11, verse 54. But as his time was drawing near, he came back near Jerusalem. Remember, Bethany about two miles out, or less than two miles away. We say, who was there? Well, we see again Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. This celebration. Lazarus one of the guests seated at the table with him. Mary, we find her once again where? At the feet of Jesus. We have here once again a picture of believers serving the Lord. Martha was up front at the table, in the kitchen, doing what she always had been doing. Service to the Lord. Practical ways. 
service, organization, planning, getting her hands dirty. This is where Martha was. And then Lazarus, who now was alive again, he was a trophy of God's grace. His place in this event at this time was seated next to Jesus. Close to Jesus. This illustration of a new disciple, one who people wanted to see and rejoice with, a witness. And then there's Mary at the feet of Jesus. We understand further as we will read the account in 12, uh, in these few verses of her deep devotion to Christ. Martha, Lazarus, Mary, all present, near Christ, all serving Christ in different ways, gifted differently, all wanted to stay near to Jesus. Same thing today. Every Christian has certain gifting. If you're a Christian this morning, God has gifted you to serve him within the local church in a certain way. They're not self-appointed. They are God-given. Where is Jesus worshipped and served in the New Covenant? We find this in the, the church. They stayed near Jesus as they served, just as we are to stay near Jesus as in the local church, as we serve the context of the local church primarily. So this event was held and those who were present were serving. And they were also openly worshiping Jesus Christ. Why is this important? Well, they were serving the Lord at this house where many were coming by to visit. The word was out. Lazarus is alive again. Jesus was around there as well. This is after the death warrant was signed. This is anyone associated with Jesus and knew where he was, was to report it to the Sanhedrin. That's what you were supposed to do. In chapter 11, verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was reported so that they might seize him. What do you think would have happened to those who were with Jesus, who were hiding him when they came to seize him? Jesus was a threat to the, to the power of their religious leaders, to their appearance of prestige. He exposed their hypocrisy. Anyone caught aiding and abetting one that the Sanhedrin said were going after him, they would face consequences as well. So I guess Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would just hide out then. No, that's not what they did. Martha was serving. Lazarus was seated as a witness. And Mary continued in her steadfast devotion to Christ. They were under a threat of being associated with Jesus even then. And they hosted Jesus in their home openly for this meal. Lazarus' life was in danger as well, as we'll see in our next study. They wanted to kill him as well. Destroy the evidence. If we destroy Lazarus, we seize Jesus, there'll be no story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. No one will be able to talk about it. Let's just snuff that out. Let's seize, uh, destroy the evidence. How would we respond? How would we respond in such circumstances? Christians, if you haven't noticed, the walls are closing in. The squeeze is on. It's getting tighter and tighter against, uh, against Christians. And I speak in the context of our own country. In every single front in our society, there is a continual assault on the biblical worldview and on Christians. Those who profess to be Christians who suffer not at all, either are not Christians or they have a different worldview, which they need to repent of, which is not a biblical worldview. Under assault, the family unit, schools, children, marriage, speech. Some of these things happen 
that are happening are, are obvious to us. We, we see it. And it's hard to keep up, isn't it? But some are very subtle. Very subtle. The other night, we decided to go to the tree lighting ceremony. And yes, Lindsay, I'm going there. A tree lighting ceremony, 30 minutes, 6 to 6.30. Say, great, they got a huge tree. They put all the lights up and they do this every year and they're going to light it. This would be a neat thing to see. In the town which I live, there's probably a few hundred people there. It was dark, it was cold, didn't have the right socks on. There were some choirs. There were some other singers. Even a guy dressed as Santa showed up. And then this, this first lady comes up to the microphone. There's the Christmas tree right there. And I was like, okay, here we go. She's going to say a little something about the, the, the true meaning of Christmas. She gave about a five to seven minute description of Hanukkah. And I said, okay, I'll learn a little bit about more, more about Hanukkah for a few minutes. And then maybe someone else will get up and, and talk about Christmas. Anything about Christmas, just give me something. Looking for a nativity scene, you know, even though most of them are unbiblically presented. But nevertheless, anything. No one gave a description of Christmas. And they're standing right there next to a gigantic Christmas tree. It was amazing to listen to the people there who were were just doing a community event, and they were introducing different people, and they were saying, hey, season's greetings, happy holidays. They were tripping over themselves to avoid saying Merry Christmas. It was, it was quite the thing to watch. The closest thing to any mention of Jesus was a gal who sang Silent Night in German and then in English. What about when biblical speech becomes hate speech enforced? How will we respond then? So this sentimental and symbolic supper for Jesus and Lazarus there as well. And then we see and we hone in this morning on Mary and our second point, a sweet scent of devotion to the Savior, this sweet scent of devotion to the Savior, this fragrant devotion to Christ. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. A pound, 12 ounces, half a liter, some say a pint perfume of pure nard. One scholar describes this as coming from a plant in India. It was very costly. Judas opined that it was worth about 300 denarii. So this is about a a year's wages. Now consider uh, you who work full-time, year's wage. Now, if we were to say, okay, what does someone make over here, someone make over there, just average that out. Someone that someone can make and live for a year and their family. That's how much, in our context, if we can think that way, how much this little bottle of very costly perfume was worth. All of that in one bottle. And Mary was about to break this open and pour it out to anoint Jesus Christ. Some scholars suggest, as I mentioned before, that this family, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were a family of means. Perhaps they were wealthy. Okay, if that's indeed the case, what an example Mary sets for us. One danger of having wealth is keeping it from keeping it is keeping it too close and only using it for self and purchasing whatever you would want. Nothing wrong with wealth, nothing wrong with purchasing something for yourself, nothing wrong with spending money on something valuable, perhaps. And oftentimes you get what you pay for, don't you? You spend $25 more, and wow, the thing lasts five, ten years. The question is not, do you have money and own possessions? The question is, as we know, this question, we've heard it before, does your money have you? Do your possessions own you? Money is a neutral object. Money in itself is not evil. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. 
1 Timothy chapter 6. But we see this with Judas, don't we? The point concerning Mary, if indeed she was wealthy, she could afford valuable things and she did not hesitate to give valuable things to Jesus Christ. If Mary was not a wealthy person, let's look at the flip side to that, which is possible, then it makes this act of worship all the more poignant to us. This jar of perfume could have been a treasured family heirloom acquired by the passing of a parent or close relative. Think of that. If they were indeed not wealthy, and this is, this is all she had, treasured, most valuable possession given to her, She gave it to the Lord cheerfully, delightfully, with a heart of worship. Whether wealthy or not, she offered her treasure to the Lord whom she treasured in her heart. No holding back, full devotion to Christ. She gave her heart, she gave her time, she gave her resources, she gave her commitment, this fragrant aroma to Christ, this sweet scent of devotion to the Savior. We see a text in, in Ephesians to which we can apply this to our life as well. And then you can write this down if you will. I won't go there this morning, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 And the point I would make there is proclaimers of the gospel are a a life-giving sweet perfume to the ones who believe. Think about that. When you're witnessing to someone who believes or who will believe, that is going to be a sweet scent to them. When you're fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters and you're talking of the things of the Lord, this sweet aroma is there. But then when you share the gospel with one who does not want Christ, who hates Jesus Christ, it smells, it is stinky, and they want nothing of it. It's a stench of death to those who reject, revile, and repudiate to those who are perishing. But Paul tells us to be imitators of God in chapter 5 of Ephesians, as beloved children walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. A description is this, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And we say that's what Christ did. What do we do? Well, we apply that to our walks. We say, what did Mary do? And she gave her all a fragrant devotion, a life given over to Jesus. She anointed his feet with her hair. Uh, Excuse me. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Several considerations of this as well. She not only poured the perfume over his head, but also wiped his feet. Secondly, she used her hair. In order to do this, she had to let her hair down. This was not normal practice for a a Jewish gal to let her hair down in public. In fact, it was considered by some to be scandalous. A woman who let her hair down in public could be viewed as an adulteress. And if she was married, her husband could divorce her for it. If single, she could be stoned to death. For doing that, imagine the shock of those who were in the room, those who were in the house. And here is Mary letting down her hair and wiping the feet of Jesus. Imagine the expressions on those who who saw this. As she, as a woman to letting down her hair was something done in the privacy of one's home with close family this expression of fervent love. But as she did this, she was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. She did not stop and say, oh, I wonder what they're going to think of me right now. No, she wanted to worship Jesus. And there was a reason, as we will see, why she anointed him with this oil or perfume. Richard Phillips again says, So by not only unbinding her hair, but using it to wipe Jesus' feet, Mary expressed a completely surrendered devotion in which nothing was held back. 
complete, fully surrendered devotion to Jesus Christ. Leon Morris says, Mary did not stop to calculate public reaction. Her heart went out to her Lord, and she gave expression to her feelings in this beautiful, touching act. Thirdly, when she wiped his feet, she was taking the position of a servant of the lowliest place. She was saying, as it were, this is who I am before the God in whom I serve. To attend one's feet was to take the place of a lowly slave. There was no question of her all-out devotion to Christ. Why did she anoint him with perfume is the question. Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 14, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. It may have been Mark 14. So out of everyone around, all of the disciples that were there, others who may have been visiting, anyone who would have seen this and and with their eyes as as saucers and the, the shock on their face, everyone around Jesus Christ, Mary was the one who knew that he was to be anointed. She was the one who said, this must be done for Jesus the Savior. Mary knew from the Old Testament that prophets and kings are to be anointed. Mary knew who she was dealing with. And she knew that Jesus' hour was quickly approaching. And she knew he was going to die. If the disciples had paid more attention to the teachings of Jesus, they would have known. They would have understood the hour at hand. They were not asleep. They understood the hour at hand. She understood the hour at hand. They did not. They were shrinking back. They did not pay attention to the preaching of the word. They did not pay attention to Jesus as they ought to. But Mary understood what Jesus was about to do. She knew he was about to die. How did she know? What did she do to gain such understanding? Did she get some supernatural special vision? Did she go off in the, in the woods somewhere or a park somewhere and get this special revelation? No, she sat at the feet of Jesus Christ and listened. She listened more carefully than the disciples did. The application for us should be piercing to our hearts. In 1910, there was an evangelist by the name of Tom Haney who was traveling by train to a conference. There's a 15-year-old young lad, a Christian, who was in the same train car as Haney. During the train ride, Haney was reading his Bible while the young man was reading the newspaper. The young man said to Haney, Sir, I wish I knew my Bible like you knew yours. Haney looked up from reading his Bible to the young man and said, Son, you will never learn it reading the newspaper and went back to reading his Bible. The young man put the newspaper down and picked up his own Bible and began to read it. He never forgot that moment. He became one of the greatest preachers, this young man, one of the greatest preachers in America from 1930 to 1960s, roughly in that area. Because of this moment, because of this man's life and God using this. Point for us, we don't grow in our knowledge of the Lord and develop a a deeper appreciation for what the Lord has done by listening to secular people talk about secular things or reading secular news about secular things. That's not how we grow, is it? No, we must go back to the word. Live in the word. Mary seemed to be the only one at this point that understood that Jesus was about to die. Jesus told the disciples plainly in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. You could turn there if you like. I'm going to go through it quickly. Mark 
Verse 32, I'll start there. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. It's pretty plain. It's pretty clear. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus asking, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant that we may sit at your right hand and one on your left in your in your glory. Jesus said it plainly to them. And as we will learn in John chapter 13 and John chapter 14, they were not grasping what Jesus was saying. Jesus was laying it on the table and they weren't picking it up. Mary knew and she gave what she had, this costly perfume and devoted her life to be at the feet of Jesus Christ, devoted to him, desirous to learn of him. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. Much we could say about the fragrance and how it was spread, and also the the response of those to the fragrance. Well, this oil or perfume was used in several ways. One way to think about it is a way of deodorant back then. Of sorts. They did not shower daily like we have the opportunity and the privilege of being able to do. Praise God for hot water as well. They did not have the access. Oil or perfume was a nice smell that could help cover up the odors. You know, the, the outside smell, even if you walk for a day or whatnot. This could help cover up the odors. In our context, we have. Uh, What's known as cheap perfume and more expensive perfume or cologne that lasts longer and has a pleasant, pleasant odor. And then there are those who wear too much. And at the gym, too, I always wonder about that is why. <clears throat> but a strong and large amount of perfume, this type, this for the anointing of the Lord poured out applied to his body, it would be noticeable and it would be spread throughout. The the reaction of those around was not a positive one, as we'll learn from all three accounts. But consider what their response would have been later on. My mom used to have a certain perfume. I still have a small bottle of it that I saved And once in a while, as I go through pictures, as I go through things, she's passed away many years ago, several years ago. As I go through pictures and I look at at different things that maybe remind me of her, I see the bottle. And once in a while, I'll just open it a little bit and, and just, you know, smell it. And it has the same smell. It's like, that's, that's what mom used to wear. So memories come back. I look at a few pictures and memories come back, all because of the fragrance, the senses, sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell. Some of you can relate. Certain scents bring back memories. Maybe those that you enjoy remembering and those you wish you forgot. Those that bring back just great joy and those who may bring even a heartache. But this particular fragrance, this costly perfume that Mary anointed the Lord with could have lingered in Jesus' hair and on his body, on his feet, for quite some time in this final week of his life. Imagine the disciples' reaction because we saw how they reacted in the house. We saw that what they said, scolding her, indignant, Two years later, and they're serving the Lord or whatever it may be, and they go somewhere. Maybe someone's got a, bunch, a, a, a nice setup, and they, they have a special, they have a certain smell of fragrance or something, and they invite the disciples in, and there's that scent again. 
and that brings back the memories of how they responded, brings back the memories of how they should have listened when Mary was devoted to the Lord and they were scolding her for what she was doing. Mary had a sweet scent of devotion to the Savior. And then we see a sour stench of religious hypocrisy. A sour stench of religious hypocrisy. Here walks in Judas into our study. He responds, being the instigator, the spokesman for the others who were angry at this. He was probably, uh, this is conjecture, this is sanctified imagination, egging them on. He was the one who said it. He's the one who was pointed out. He was the one who was a devil. The disciples, indignant. We saw that. We read that. They were scolding her. They were disagreeing with what was happening. But one individual singled out in the Gospel of John. Judas stood out from the other disciples in at least two ways. He was the one who carried the money box being a thief as well, and he was not a true disciple. Look at how he's described. Verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, the son of Simon Iscariot, he was the only one of the 12 that was not a Galilean. One of his disciples, yet not truly, I'll just read this for us in John 6, verse 71. Now he meant Judas. Well, Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and that one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him, one that was a devil, intending to betray Jesus. And so this did not work out for him after he saw what Mary did with the perfume. Wow, a whole year's wages. But then he goes right after this, as we read, right after this, it says, how much will you give me to betray him? 30 pieces of silver, roughly a half year's wages. He was a thief. He used to pilfer from the common purse. So why didn't the others do something about this? We know who you are, Judas. We're taking you outside. Why didn't they do something? Surely they must have known. No, they didn't. Judas had everyone fooled at this point except Jesus. He looked like a disciple, walked like a disciple, was trusted as a fellow disciple, but he was a devil. He was a false convert. He was put in a place where he was trusted, a place of privilege, yet he was not the real deal. Judas was playing the part due to his wicked motives, most prominent, his love of money, and he would steal from the rest of them and from the offering, the purse that they had. All Judas could think about when Mary was anointing Jesus, when she was worshiping the Lord, was the money he could have gotten because of that perfume. It was right after the supper. When Judas saw this, he went out to see, as I mentioned, how much he could get to betray him. But the disciples didn't recognize it because he was right there with him, was playing the game. One way, side note, one way to spot a false teacher one that has wicked covetousness, covetous motives in ministry, is how they are with ministry, with finances. And sometimes it's more subtle than other times. Sometimes we can look at the prosperity gospel with the private jets and and this, that, and the other. We say "There's, there's no question there. We see it. It's public. It's on display. But then there is those who, by way of functioning with finances, are elusive. Non-transparent, non-forthcoming, pretending to care just as Judas did. Pretending to care for the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He cared about the money. Pretending to care. And then the other extreme, the, the lavish living of the prosperity gospel, folks. 
questionable financial decisions that do not add up. Remember the old plastic masks back in the day when you were, well, when I was a child, um, when they had the old costumes for whatever occasion it was, right? It was like a trash bag, basically. You put it over yourself, and then there was this plastic mask that was just a plastic piece and one white string that went around it, and it would stay on your face. Maybe some of you remember this. And you would put it on with an elastic string, or someone would put it on. But then the people would be running around or whatever it was, and then slowly the mask would fall off. And you begin to see what's really behind there. Oh, I know who that is. I know who you really are. The mask most always falls off. And when it does, you can see who's behind it. We can look at Judas, his criticism of Mary's devotion as well, his criticism of of what she was doing, and learn from that too. Know that if you are truly devoted to Christ, Others who, who pretend or profess to follow Jesus will be offended by your devotion. Christmas is almost here, and it's on a Sunday. Maybe families coming in town who not hostile to the things of the Lord, but they say, hey, are we going to do the same traditions we do every year? Yeah, we'll do them later in the day. I'm going to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords first and foremost. He's my God, not this. What that would say in a kind way to put it to children, to lost family members, what our priorities are. More I could say about Mary and her devotion and the contrast between her And Judas, I have some comments from James Boyce, but I'll skip over those for our final point this morning. Just as a way of review, this sentimental and symbolic supper, the sweet scent of devotion to the Savior that we find with Mary, the sour stench of religious hypocrisy that we found with Judas, and the savoring service to the Savior the saving, savoring service to the Savior. Verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus defended Mary. She saved the perfume for this purpose. Was Jesus concerned for the poor? Of course he was. The Gospels show that to be true. The point was that our concerns for the issues of this world must not take priority of our worship of the Lord. He says, you do not always have me. The time for his departure was at hand. Mary knew it. The cross was in view. And Jesus would no longer soon be with them as he was at that moment. Mary was serving Jesus while she could with everything she had, full on devoted to the Lord with the time that she had knowing that he was going to go to the cross and die for sinners. This is an example for us, brothers and sisters, to serve the Lord while there is still time. Serve the Lord while you can. Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Sometimes a choice will be laid before you, and you may never have the opportunity to decide again when a fork in the road, an opportunity is there. Such it may be for some of you today who are not following Jesus. Because you're not a Christian, you've never repented of your sin, and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ. It may be 
now or never. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. No one in here has promised another day. Why would you wait? Why would you delay? Don't be like Judas and die without Christ. We are called to be like Mary, fully devoted to Jesus Christ, to count the cost, to pick up our cross, die to self, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the aroma of your life? That is the question to leave with this morning. God, what is the aroma of my life? Lord, I want the aroma of my life to be sweet-smelling to you, Lord. I know sometimes it stinks. I know sometimes that I, I walk in ways I shouldn't, oh Lord. I know I just, Lord, my life, I want it to be a sweet aroma to you. Help me in that, oh Lord. A sweet scent of devotion to the Savior. Pouring your all for Jesus Christ. Not a sour stench of religious hypocrisy. Honoring him with lips but hearts far from him. And savoring or tasting, enjoying, delighting in service to the Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you for this chapter, these verses. And we see the lives of your people contrasted to that of Judas Iscariot. And we say at times our lives are like both or all of them. Our hearts are at least. God, let us not be a people that compares our our lives to to others, wherever they are in this world. But let us look to the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that there's nothing that we can do that is good enough to inherit eternal life. There is only one that was good, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who went to the cross and died for sinners like us, bore the wrath of God the Father, willingly gave up his life, was laid in the tomb and rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. He conquered death. He set those of us who know Christ, he set us free. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you that our chains are gone. Thank you that you have given us the ability and the power to have a sweet scent of devotion to you, Lord. And when we fall short, O God, and we do, thank you that you are a God who forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.